This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Hacia, whose Executive Fellows Program provides Black and Latinx business owners with real-world tools and strategies needed to master fundamental management concepts related to company stability and growth. Registrants learn through one-on-one executive coaching sessions with subject matter experts in the areas of finance, business development, operations, and legal. More info at HACIAWorks.org. This is Reset. I'm Esther Yunji Kang in for Sasha Ann Simons. Bugs that play plants like musical instruments, platypus bills that sense electric fields, butterflies that taste with their feet, squirrels that can't feel the cold of winter. In his newest book, An Immense World, science writer Ed Yong takes us inside the sensory world of animals and reveals endless diversity in how they perceive their surroundings, in many cases experiencing things completely invisible to us. More than a fascinating exploration of animal senses, it's also a call to action. We talked to Yong about how sources of pollution humans may not even notice, like light and noise, are making it harder and harder for animals to keep on sensing and surviving. To start, what was it like switching from reporting on the pandemic to animals? It honestly felt a bit like coming home, um, and it was just a a salve for my weary soul. Um, It's difficult to uh, continue writing about the ongoing tragedy that Mm. is the COVID pandemic. And um, this uh, felt like not not just a shift in terms of topic, but a shift in terms of tone. The thing I'm writing about, the ways other animals experience the world, the extraordinary senses that they have, is, is I think, a, a, a topic of joy and wonder. Um, it's a field that expands our understanding of the world around us, makes us see things that were familiar in um, new and unfamiliar ways. Mm. It has that sort of galaxy brain, you know, rushing out to tell your friends some cool facts mm-hmm. um, feeling that has characterized a lot of my work before the pandemic and, you know, and was a joy to delve back into. You write a lot about the multiple overlapping crises we're facing, uh, a pandemic, climate change, social and economic inequality. You've talked about all those things here on Reset in the past. So why is this book about animals important right now in this moment? I think at its core, um, An Immense World is a book about radical acts of empathy. It's about trying to take the perspective of creatures that are incredibly different to us in the way they see and hear and feel and smell. In many ways, I think a total failure of empathy underlies many of the big problems we face today, including many of the problems that have been uh, exposed by the pandemic. The inequalities we face, um, you know, our, our inability to understand the experiences of people who've suffered more than we might have. So I think there's this common thread of trying to cast your mind into the lives of others who are very different than you, whether it's you know animals that sense the world in a different way or whether it's people who um, have less fortunate experiences. Um, you know, that, that's something that 
I'm not, you know, not suggesting that uh, thinking about how dogs smell or how bats <laughs> echolocate is going to fix our big social problems. <laughs> but I think like empathy is a muscle that we can build um, and and flex. Mm. You write in the book that senses, quote, transform the coursing chaos of the world into experiences and that they allow biology to tame physics. What do you mean by that? So the, the book's organized uh, in chapters that each deal with a kind of stimulus. So whether it's light or sound or um, pressure or heat and how animals sense them. The one thing that unites all of these things is it, they're all kind of abstract quantities and there's really no you know, it's not a given that we should be able to detect them at all. And it's kind of wondrous that we do. Like sound is just pressure waves coursing through mm. the air. Light is just electromagnetic ra radiation. Smell is just small molecules drifting through the air. Mm. The fact that we have the, the hardware that um, can detect all of these um, qualities in the world around us, and then you know, and then the ability to actually turn them into the majesty of a sunset, or the smell of baking bread, or all the other you know great subjective experiences that we have. That's kind of extraordinary in its own right. Mm. So you know, the fact that we can sense the world at all is just baseline, extremely cool. And the fact that what we sense, even though it feels all encompassing to us, it feels like all there is to know. The fact that it is actually only a thin sliver of all there is to know mm. and that other animals um, perceive different parts of the fullness of reality is, I think, even more extraordinary still. Yeah, I mean, the intro grabbed me right away. You start the book by asking us to imagine being in a gym with wild animals um, and that there are all these things that they can and cannot perceive about one another. Can you walk us through that awesome example? <laughs> Right. So um, it talks about uh, imagining a large room, uh, probably a school gym in which there's like an elephant, a, a robin, a bumblebee, a spider, a bat, a rattlesnake, mm -hmm. a dog, a mouse. So a lot of these animals uh, are in the same space and a human. Um, and their experiences of that space that they physically share are going to be radically different. The snake, for example, will, will detect the uh, body heat of the mouse running through the room. The mouse can hear ultrasonic high-pitched frequencies that the bat can hear, but the elephant can't. The elephant can hear low-pitched infrasound that all the other creatures can't sense. The robin can detect the magnetic field of the earth and use that field to guide its migration. So that intro, that hypothetical example is sort of doing double duty first it's saying all of these animals can be in the same space and have an utterly different experience and it's my, my sort of vivid way of trying to get people to understand that but it also is an act of imagination and that is probably the most important thing that i'm going to ask readers to repeatedly do in the book like i can tell you the science behind say a rattlesnake's infrared sense or a bat's echolocation but to actually understand what it perceives to think about its subjective experience is is a little unknowable and requires these imaginative leaps and again you know like much like empathy that's a muscle that we can build and that i'm going to ask readers to build over the course of the book hmm that's interesting um you talk a lot in the book about umwelt what is an umwelt so an umwelt uh, is a, a sensory bubble. It is the thin sliver of 
all the information out there in the world that we can perceive. You know, it's the unique combination of sights and smells and uh, textures and sounds that we can perceive, but that another animal might not be able to. So, for example, the magnetic field that the robin can sense is part of its umbelt, but not part of mine. Um, uh, the color red is part of my umbelt, but not part mm. of a bumblebee's, for example. And so the, this concept like anchors the entire book. And, and I love it because it's it's quite humbling and for all of our like grandstanding as, as, a, as this you know, incredible species. We humans are are only still grasping a tiny fraction mm. of of the fullness of reality. Yeah, so is the takeaway that we are just trapped by our own limited senses or is there a more positive way to to look at it? Yeah, um so in, in some ways yeah, like yes, we we are <laughs> trapped in the the unveiled concept can feel constrictive, like limiting in that way. But but I actually think it's expansive because we do have this ability as a species to think about the umbelts of other creatures. And, and I don't think that's an ability that's very common. You know, I don't, I don't think a rattlesnake is sitting there thinking, what does a robin sense? Or even is aware that the robin senses different things. We do. Um, the zoologist Jakob van Uxkul, who, who pioneered the umbel concept, built it as a sort of travelogue, you know, mm. that you could go on journeys through the sensory worlds of other animals just by thinking about them and understanding them. And I think there's something quite magical and very profoundly human about about doing that. You know, to to do this, to to go on these journeys, expands our own minds, lets us see like boring things in the world in in new and wondrous ways. It feels like a gift to me, and one that we really ought to cherish. So, as a human with the senses that you have, how did you approach writing your way into all these other animals' <laughs> sensory worlds without portraying them? I know you crawled and and did like a smell test, like a dog. Um, but how did right. you how did you do that without portraying them through the bias of your own senses? So, I did a lot of travel for this um, book. I went to three different continents. I met a lot of scientists who work with a lot of interesting animals. You know, went traipsing around California looking for rattlesnakes and got punched by a mantis shrimp in <laughs> Australia. Um, so, it is hard, right? You, it's very hard to just sit there and watch an animal and actually think, like, what what is its umwelt? Um, but fortunately, a lot of people over decades and centuries have actually tried to address this question. They've done interesting studies and experiments. And those people have also thought a lot about what other animals might experience. So part of the technique of the book was trying to tell the stories of the researchers who work in the space, you know, trying to get people who study electric fish to speculate about what it might be like to sense through the, the world through the electric fields that you yourself might generate. And I found that the, the people who do work in this area really have thought hard about the, the sort of philosophical implications of their science. Uh, and I think that's that's part of the richness um, of, of this topic and that I hope to bring out in the book. So the chapters of this book uh, walk us through animal senses one by one, uh, like smells, tastes, color, heat, sound, and electric fields, to name just a few. But you also explain how senses can overlap 
like how ant neurons can sense smell and touch at the same time, or how people can experience synesthesia. Can you explain that for us? Yeah, I think we're used to thinking of the senses as separate buckets, right? Like with humans, we have the the classic uh, Aristotelian five senses, but they aren't actually that discreet, and and especially not in other animals. Um, So, you know, an an ant might... uh, might both taste and touch with its antennae. It might be able to feel a flavor or, or um, be able to taste uh, a shape. And, you know, that, that extends to a lot of other animals too. Um, you know, I talk about uh, uh, in that chapter about um, the bill of the duck-billed platypus um, has um, mechanosensors that detect um, touch and pressure and also electric sensors that mm. detect electric fields. And there are some people who think that maybe all of these things fuse into a single sense of electro touch. Um, humans have something a little bit similar to that. We have uh, a lot of people have synesthesia where um, the senses blur into each other. Mm. So people might associate like um, uh, a, a number uh, or a, a sort of abstract concept with um, a smell or a color. Um, but I think those kinds of perceptual blurring are actually quite commonplace um, for a lot of other animals. So what animal sensory mysteries are, are still unsolved? I think there are lots. Um, so I've got a huge, ch- I've got a whole chapter in the book about vibration sensors and so being able to detect um, the, um, the waves that move along the solid surfaces that we touch and on which we stand. Um, a lot of animals do this, but it's sort of, it's a little neglected. You know, I talk in the book about um, how elephants might be able to use this kind of seismic sense to communicate over long distances, how um, insects called leafhoppers are sending um, vibrational songs through the plants around us all the time without us being aware of of it. And then there are senses where there are still huge mysteries. With vision, a sense that most of us are familiar with, I know what's responsible for vision. I have two eyes. I know the cells in those eyes that detect light. But I don't know what the sense organs or what the receptors are for magnetoreception, the mm. ability that birds and turtles and other animals use to detect Earth's magnetic field. Mm. That's a very counterintuitive sense. People have tried to puzzle over what's the organ that senses magnetic fields for a, a, a long time. And there's been multiple dead ends, uh, multiple false leads. The sense of the world of animal senses has been studied for decades, centuries, maybe even millennia. But there is still so much to discover. And one of the scientists I talked to published a paper just a few years ago uh, that basically that was titled, we we really don't know anything, do we? (laughs) Yeah, that part made me laugh out loud. Ed, this book is a joy to read. But of course, when it comes to the natural world, we, we can't ignore the devastating effects we've had on ecosystems and wildlife. Um, Your last chapter touches on some of that, like how we've boosted noise levels in our oceans to to levels OSHA wouldn't approve of, uh, to the detriment of marine life. How do the problems of light and noise pollution, for example, um, compare to other types of pollution we've maybe heard more about? 
Yeah, uh, I think they are substantial uh, and important. We have flooded the world with um, sensory pollution that stimuli like light, noise and other things that um, drown out the um, cues that animals need, the alarm calls and mating um, sounds uh, that they rely upon. It, we Those, those um, stimuli that we put into the world distract animals from things they need to pay attention to, might push them out of areas uh, that um, that would otherwise be ideal for them because it's too bright or too noisy. Through light and noise pollution, we um, waylay migrating birds from their paths, often with fatal results. Um, you know, we have collapsed the amount of space over which whales and other oceanic animals can hear because we fill that space with the din of noisy ships. You know, these problems are significant, and I think we ignore them in a sort of paradoxical way. Light and sound should be things that are very obvious to us, mm. but we neglect their impact because we don't think of them as pollutants. You know, light, for example, is something we want more of. But if we flood it into the world at times where it doesn't belong, we cause problems for the for the animals around us in ways that are, you know, I think just as dramatic as, say, plastic pollution or, you know, chemicals billowing out of a smokestack. But, um, but are less obvious to us because we just don't think of them as negative things. So really quickly, just what can we do? A lot of the things we can do are actually pretty simple. So we can put up sound absorbing structures around roads. We can force ships to move at slower speeds, which is also an economic boon. Um, we can turn off lights at night um, in public buildings, in our own homes. We can do small individual actions, but also big policy changes to reduce light and noise. And I think we should do that. Like, unlike things like, say, pesticides or plastics, um, uh, you know, radioactive wastes, unlike these things which are going to last in the environment for a long time, even if we stop all production tomorrow, light and noise, if we just turn them off, they disappear mm. and immediately. This is a rare example of an ecological gimme, like a, a problem that is huge in, in scope, but that can be quickly addressed mm. if we have the political will to do so and if we recognize that this genuinely is a problem. That's award-winning science reporter Ed Young. Ed, thanks again. Yeah, thank you. That was a delight. That episode of The Reset Podcast was produced by Christian Elliott and Ethan Schwab. It was edited by Stephanie Kim. I'm Esther Yunji Kang in for Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again soon. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.